Hey, you want to take a run at him? No. No? No. Since when? No. You know, I was meaning to tell you I'm getting out of here. You okay? Yeah, I'm fine. I'm just... You know, I think I've seen too many guys naked. It's gonna be over a fucking hundred at this point. I need to go and do something normal for a while. Like what? I'll go to Washington, do the dance, see how that environment works. <laughs> you should come with me. Yeah, be my number two. You're looking a little strung out yourself. I'm not gonna find Abu Ahmed from D.C. Look, Maya, you gotta be real careful with the detainees now. Okay, politics are changing, and you don't want to be the last one holding a dog collar when the oversight committee comes. Welcome to episode two of Schlock and Awe, a podcast where we unravel the cinematic universe of the global war on terror in the hope of answering the question, what's our generation's defining war movie? I'm Evan Hill. And I'm Jack Crosby. We're two journalists who grew up in the post 9-11 era, and we spent most of our careers covering the effects of those attacks and the wars the U.S. began after them. Today, we're discussing Zero Dark Thirty, director Catherine Bigelow's account of the efforts to find and kill Osama bin Laden one of the most critically acclaimed and ethically controversial entries in the War on Terror filmography. We're joined today by Spencer Ackerman, a Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist and author of Reign of Terror, How the 9-11 Era Destabilized America and Produced Trump. Spencer also writes the Forever Wars newsletter and is co-writer of the forthcoming DC Comics miniseries Waller vs. Wildstorm. Spencer, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thanks very much for having me, you guys. So before we get into it with Spencer, I just want to give uh, some quick context. Zero Dark Thirty comes out in December 2012. That's its premiere. Wide release uh, in January 2013. It stars Jessica Chastain as a CIA agent named Maya, Jason Clark as a CIA agent named Ben, Kyle Chandler of Friday Night Lights fame as the Pakistan CIA station chief. Uh, and then you've got this sort of um, very interesting cast of supporting actors, which includes Chris Pratt, I think in his breakout operator role as a Navy SEAL. Joel Edgerton, great actor as a Navy SEAL. James Gandolfini as CIA director Leon Panetta. Mark Strong as a CIA counter-terror dude. Jeremy Strong, long before succession as a CIA agent. And then I think my favorite, the English actor Stephen Delane, who would later go on to play Stannis Baratheon in Game of Thrones as a kind of composite uh, national security advisor character who can barely hide his, uh, his English accent. Um, no love for Harold Perrineau? <laughs> You'll have to tell me. About Come on. Perrineau. Yeah, yeah. I, I just want to confirm that this is almost certainly the first debut of buff Chris Pratt. This was <laughs> while he was like still, he was still like deep into his Parks and Rec run. Right. So that I didn't realize that this happened the whole... in the middle of Parks and Rec. That's so funny. Yeah, um, yeah. I tier, think they were. Tier one Pratt. Tier one yeah. Pratt. <laughs> It's a, it's a late season. Um, so this is, yeah, Chris Pratt, breakthrough operator mode. He's on the mission to kill, uh, spoiler alert, Osama bin Laden. So just on the economics, this movie is one of the sort of rarer 
uh, GWAT success stories. I think in episode one, we obviously did American Sniper. That is the sort of defining GWAT blockbuster earns a shitload of money. Zero Dark Thirty does not earn as much money, but um, it does quite well for itself. It has a budget of somewhere between 40 to $50 million, but it earns all-time international box office $134 million. This is directed by Catherine Bigelow, famous name. Interestingly, before this, Catherine Bigelow had kind of been in the cinematic wilderness after a huge flop in 1995 called Strange Days. She had basically done sort of small films for 13 years, including, I don't know if you guys are fans of K-19, The Widowmaker, starring Harrison Ford. Not not one um, I'm familiar with. <laughs> but that's, I think, the, the movie that she makes before she breaks back into fame with The Hurt Locker uh, in 2008, which of course wins Best Picture and Best Director. And then... Four years after Hurt Locker, she makes Zero Dark Thirty with the journalist Mark Boll, who also wrote Hurt Locker. He's sort of a big-time magazine writer during the War on Terror, during the during the Iraq War in the 2000s. And then they make Zero Dark Thirty, which is about the hunt to kill uh, Osama bin Laden. In the world of, of film, this is considered an excellent movie. It gets positive reviews from a lot of people. And as I went back and looked at this uh, for this podcast... I saw a lot of reviews that that sort of praised the grittiness, praised the darkness. A lot of people see this as, you know, the defining tale of 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 the war on terror. But it comes with all this baggage that we're going to get into. And so I'm wondering what you guys think about this idea that this is actually considered by a lot of people to be the best GWAT movie and and one that takes seriously all the issues and and uh and doesn't represent things positively and in fact represents them accurately. What I thought was, you know, at first blush, the potential subversiveness about the movie was that American audiences had never seen CIA torture. And I had been, when this movie came out, reporting on it for the like better part of a decade and constructing narratives from inside, you know, denied places, from leaked materials, from the emergence of the international committee uh, on, you know, from the red cross reports, things like that to illustrate what, you know, in official records as well, what torture was really like. And then for the first seemingly 40 minutes of screen time in a really unapologetic way, zero dark 30 gives you that. And I was taken by it because I, without sort of knowing that I had made this assumption, figured that audiences would immediately understand that, like, this movie is about the United States sacrificing its claim on being a civilized mm -hmm. society and sacrificing the, the kind of lofty moral proclamations upon which so much American atrocity um, throughout the war on terror has floated. And instead, it does the exact opposite. Uh, what the movie does with those scenes, and I guess I didn't let myself understand that it was it was you know right. that propagandistic because it was I was so taken by the you know bracing faithfulness um, of of what we know of of the torture to have been that I was you know blinded initially from recognizing that all of this is in the service of an enormous lie told by the CIA 
of how all of this led right. to Osama bin Laden. It is telling the audience that if you approve of the final dispensation of Osama bin Laden, then you owe it to these brave CIA torturers to tip your cap. And what they really mean by that in this moment, this is the whole reason why the CIA, the Defense Department, the Obama White House funds this movie. Um, and provides Bull and Bigelow with the access and the cooperation that they did, is during a moment when the CIA is being actively investigated by its Senate overseer for the atrocities that its operatives committed after 9-11, this movie is saying, shut the fuck up. There's another really big lie that the movie tells by virtue of ending where it does which is that it's telling an audience, and I think this is really a very important propagandistic contribution of this movie, it's telling an audience in 2013 that the war on terror is over. Right. That, that the story of 9-11, the story of the American response that brings the torturers into the torture chambers where we start the movie has ended. The, 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 the belly of the C-130 has, has closed the bird is in the air. Who knows where we all go from here? But it's not over. It's not over 10 years later as we're talking about this movie. The morning that, we were, that we're recording this, one of these very people that the CIA tortured, very importantly in this story, uh, named Majid Khan, who is no innocent man, as he'll be the first one to acknowledge, after nearly 20 years of captivity... Uh, Majid Khan, one of the most horrifically tortured um, 9-11 uh, survivors of the CIA black sites, a man whom the CIA, he read out in a statement at Guantanamo Bay, raped. This man stepped off an American plane free today. And Zero Dark Thirty is trying to tell you that all of this is over. Right. And that's a message that at that moment suits every political strain going in American life as well as the interests of the security state. Yeah. The, the movie is kind of like bookended with, with, yeah, with, with two really intense scenes and, and then like a whole bunch of like office politics in between interspersed with like occasional terrorist attacks. Right. And the two scenes that bookends it are like intense, intense depiction of torture and, ultimate tier one operator raid in which basically everything goes exactly according to plan. Like they fuck up, the helicopter goes down, you know, it is what it is. They blow it up. Everyone gets out alive and they actually get Bin Laden. Like they took a huge risk on this because they were not a hundred percent sure, even though Jessica Chastain was, <laughs> and they get it right. And, and the, the, the message that I feel like that sends is that Spencer, as you know, the justification all along, the government's justification, every single person's justification for torture and the history of torture has been that it's the quickest way to get results. And this entire movie is an extended allegory. I mean, not allegory is just directly showing you that torture yeah. gets results and you get this incredible emotional payoff from like the honestly like unpleasant and upsetting like you can be forgiven for watching the first, as you say, 40 minutes of this movie and thinking, whoa, this is a subversive, like I've never seen the U.S.'s actions portrayed like this. Like it's hard to 
empathize with the two main characters is they're just like clearly brutalizing these men unless you're you know just so bloodthirsty out of your eyes like islamophobic that you just love seeing that kind of thing um well as it turns out there will be a tremendous number of film goers who have that precise response yes and that's true <laughs> and and i yeah and 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 i think you know in I think that's just really important to acknowledge yeah. that torture porn is the sort of thing you can talk yourself into believing it's subversive. But when you present it, there's going to be just a massive audience that's just there for what's, you know, presented right. at face value. Right. And don't forget, I mean, we haven't mentioned, but don't forget that how this movie starts, which is that this movie starts with. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly how when John Brennan has to give the press conference with the CIA's response to the Senate torture report, does the exact same thing as Zero Dark Thirty, which is narrate 9-11. This movie starts out with you hearing the recordings of doomed people aboard the planes trying to tell their loved ones that they love them for the, for the last time. When Brennan, in December of 2014, has to attack and attempt to discredit the Senate torture report that debunks so much of not just the CIA's official narrative, but this story, this movie in particular, he begins exactly the same way. For five minutes, he tells an audience of journalists broadcast at that moment as well, the story of 9-11. Right, right. It's almost, it's this sort of ritualistic, wrenching experience to relive, or not even relive, I think for a lot of people you know, they've never heard these phone calls before. And there's a reason for that. And the reason for that is that these families don't really want the audio to be heard. And they played it uh, in the context of congressional hearings. But when this movie comes out and these families find out some of them for the first time that the last moments of their loved ones' lives are going to be played in perpetuity for the rest of all time, as the sort of pre-roll to Zero Dark Thirty, they're incensed and they demand, you know, various apologies and other things from Catherine Bigelow and Mark Bull, which never come. Uh, you know, the the producers of the film say that, you know, they try to reach out to as many family members as possible, but it's within their rights to use these recordings with which have been played on news broadcasts and in public hearings. But a lot of these families uh, very explicitly said when they when they allowed these recordings to be used, we do not want them to be used you know, for profit or for commercial reasons. And they end up in the beginning of Zero Dark Thirty, which primes any view, even even a sort of cynical viewer like me, primes me to receive the story that is coming, which is one of torture and death. Yeah, it doesn't just want, it wants you to be fearful and angry and vengeful because that's ultimately what's at the heart of the torture program. Right. And it, and it throughout the film, like as i was saying you get even with that i feel like even if you are vengeful and angry like it's still i mean yes some people are going to have that exact reaction but it's still sort of viscerally unpleasant as a human being to watch someone be waterboarded you see that reflected in jessica chastain as well in the, in the early torture scenes and you see right. her throughout the film basically become hardened to it to where it doesn't even bother her anymore and right. if she is kind of like the audience's like entry point into it at first she's kind of disturbed by it and then you see she becomes not bothered by it because torture gets results mm -hmm. and the entire film is just constructed 
around this lie that torture gets results building into this like incredible emotional finale of this raid where everything goes right and they geronimo 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 they get bin laden and he's down and then the the film just kind of ends and it's like there it is there was the result we did it and all it took was 40 minutes of us like waterboarding guys in dark sheds let's set up this first part of the film because i think we should just talk about the, the representation of torture so just to set the stage and then spencer i'm curious to hear your your thoughts on this the, the film begins, as Jack was saying, for about the first half an hour or so. It opens in an undisclosed detention location, which is almost assuredly what is known as the salt pit in Afghanistan outside of or, you know, on the outskirts of, of Kabul, not far from the uh, international airport, which to your point, your point, Spencer, about these events not being over. Although the salt pit was evacuated by the CIA many years ago, it continued to be used by Afghan special forces up until the very end of the withdrawal from Afghanistan and was in fact being used by some of the most secret and abusive security units in Afghanistan during their attempt to get all of their members out of the country with the assistance of the CIA. So the salt pit lives on in history, but this film opens in the darkness with a guy who's strung up uh, and we get his name, which is Amar. And Jason Clark, the CIA officer, is torturing him for information. And Jessica, Jessica Chastain, who's just arrived from D.C., fresh recruit, is brought into the interrogation room to observe. And the next 20 to 30 minutes is basically what they can get out of Amar. It turns out that Amar is based on a real character. It's Amar Al-Baluchi, yeah. Right. So tell us, tell us Spencer, about uh, this guy. And what this movie represents about him and what actually, you know, happened with this guy. One of the underlying predications that the CIA makes to the Department of Justice in 2002 in order to get uh, the Justice Department, which was already inclined to do this, but nevertheless, to get the Justice Department to approve uh, the CIA torture program is to say that uh, torture is now defined in such a way that uh, only pain or organ, you know, equivalent to organ failure or death qualifies or psychological or other distress that, you know, lasts, they don't quite say forever, but, you know, similarly, you know, long-term. Even by that definition of torture, um, Amar al-Baluchi has suffered severe brain damage um, from this torture. He was famously used uh, as a prop for training um, CIA interrogators um, at, uh, the black, the, at the black site. Um, I have a piece um, at Forever Wars um, that I'm going to bring up just now. Yeah, and just, just, to, just to also give some context on Baluchi... Uh, Amaro Baluchi's real name, Ali Abdulaziz Ali, uh, he's a Pakistani citizen and he's a member of uh, the same extended clan as Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, who is widely considered to be the architect of the 9-11 attacks. And is the main rap against Amar is that he's been an intermediary for providing some of the hijackers uh, with money. And that's why he's been arrested. Um and he's being tortured for information, but he's extremely resistant uh, to the torture. And so they're trying to get a breakthrough by subjecting yeah. Bellucci on screen to waterboarding, stress positions, 
of physical punishment and um, containment in a in a box. In a very in, in an exceptionally small box. Um, this was uh, torture um, designed originally for um, Abu Zubaydah, who was the kind of test case um, in 2002 for all this. If it's all right, I'd like to read um, something um, that I wrote that emerged uh, after mm-hmm. um, a 2008 uh, CIA Inspector General's report about Amar al-Baluchi's torture. So um, if you want to you know, take a look at the salt pit, um, in the Senate Intelligence Committee report, um, the euphemism they give it is detention site cobalt. Um, so I mm-hmm. use the term cobalt in this story. Inside cobalt in May 2003, the CIA starved Al-Baluchi for days before giving him cans of Ensure. Interrogators hung him up from his arms to make falling asleep impossible for 82 hours and bumped Eminem at 79 decibels to underscore the point. Using a towel wrapped around his neck, they smashed his head into a plywood wall repeatedly, an approved torture technique called walling. They repeatedly doused him, nude, with frigid water, barely half a year after the CIA at that same prison accidentally froze Ghul Rahman to death. While the inspector general did not credit Al-Baluchi's allegation that his torturers sexually assaulted him, its report states in a footnote that the CIA kept Al-Baluchi naked in front of women interrogators and performed cavity searches, quote, including of his rectum, which Amar probably interpreted as threatening. This torture was instructive as well as operational. The lead interrogator at Cobalt, described as NX2, was also the head of interrogation training. He brought his students in to observe and participate in Al-Baluchi's torture for what the report calls on-the-job practice so as to be certified in how to torture people. NX2, quote, and his interrogator trainees almost certainly applied some of the measures exuberantly, the report says. Less than a year into the torture program, it was unclear whether Al-Baluchi's torture, particularly the walling, quote, was designed to elicit information from Amar or to ensure that all interrogator trainees received their certification, the inspector general found. So this is a man used as a guinea pig. He's not being tortured to get information out of him. He's being tortured so torturers can learn how to torture better. Right. And this film, in the, the, the first major sin of this film, occurs at the end of this opening sequence after they've brutally subjected in, in actually, I would say, you know, what I would take to be realistic detail, brutally subjected Amar to all the things that you just described. We see most of it happen on screen. Um, now we've been primed to see it by the voices of the, of the nine 11 victims, but it's still horrific. And if you have, you know, a heart, I think it's, it's, it's hard to watch. So this, this is the torture is occurring in 2003, shortly after Amar's arrest. And then we see this terror, this successful Al-Qaeda terror attack in, I believe you said Riyadh, Spencer. And the Jessica Chastain character gets this brilliant idea that because they've been torturing Amar, and in, specifically because they've been depriving him of sleep, he'll be delirious and he won't know if he's divulged information to them. And so Maya says... The Jessica Chastain character says to her fellow CIA torturer interrogator, let's bluff him and tell him that he gave this information up to us and we prevented the attack. So they take him outside. They give him nice food and some things in a cigarette, things to drink. And he starts talking and he gives them three names. And the third name is uh, the guy who will lead us through the rest of the movie to the raid 
a guy whose kunya is Abu Ahmed, Abu Ahmed al-Kuwaiti. So th- this is the first major sin of Zero Dark Thirty, which is the guy who's going to become the key to Osama bin Laden, Abu Ahmed, who let- we can talk about, he's the courier, is found by the CIA because they have tortured um, Amar. And this is false. This did not happen. Um, Amar was not the source of, of Abu Ahmed. It was an entirely different detainee who you see later on in the film. The actual source of Abu Ahmed, Hassan Ghul, who is another uh, Pakistani guy who gives up the name. And Hassan Ghul gives up the name uh, voluntarily under interrogation um, and not under torture. If, you, if you're reading along at home uh, with the Senate Intelligence Committee report on torture... If you go to the section uh, information on the facilitator that led to the Osama bin Laden operation, you can just refute Zero Dark Thirty as you as you watch it. I don't know how much time we have to like read this report through, but as Evan was mentioning, um, I'll just summarize the key points and then. I think that can be it. CIA records indicate that one, the CIA had extensive reporting on Abu Ahmed al-Kuwaiti, the Osama bin Laden facilitator whose identification and tracking led to the identification of bin Laden's compound and the operation that resulted in Osama bin Laden's death prior to and independent of information from CIA detainees. Two, the most accurate information on Abu Ahmed al-Kuwaiti obtained from a CIA detainee was provided by a CIA detainee who had not yet been subjected to the CIA's enhanced interrogation techniques, um, Hassan Ghul, um, as Evan is pointing out. And three, CIA detainees who were subjected to the CIA's enhanced interrogation techniques withheld and fabricated information about Abu Ahmed al-Kuwaiti. So so basically what we're saying is that the film doesn't present the fact that the in real life, the people who actually got us to Bin Laden were names that were turned up for the most part through standard interrogations of sources who were, you know, if not willing, but then at least cooperating. And the guys that we tortured and did all these horrible things to, you know, the report says gave us garbled information, partial information, or just flat out lied uh, right. in order to get the torture to stop, probably. You know, there's uh, a CIA detainee uh, named Ibn Sheikh al-Libi. I'm sorry, an al-Qaeda detainee uh, named Ibn Sheikh al-Libi, who's tortured both by the CIA and by a foreign partner. Among the things that Ibn Sheikh al-Libi's torture results in is al-Libi saying that Saddam Hussein trained al-Qaeda in chemical and biological warfare, which makes it into Colin Powell's presentation (laughs) at the United Nations. (laughs) And is an enormous public part of uh, the proffered justification um, for the Iraq war that was bullshit. Um, It subsequently uh, is learned in uh, a Senate report that um, something like six or seven months after the Iraq invasion, Al-Libi recants it and is basically saying the same sort of thing that um, you you know, we learned from the Senate uh, Intelligence Committee report that these people, um, after experiencing torture, would say all along, like, I was trying to figure out what you wanted to hear so you would stop beating the shit out of me. Stop leaving me in darkness for 60 days at a time. Stop dousing me in frigid water. A man froze to death in CIA custody, and there was no appreciable um, 
accountability for the people who froze him to death. Right. That was what this program was. I, I not to not to make light of this, but I feel like this is just like a bad cop movie sketch where they're like they've got a suspect and one cop is like talking to him and makes a bargain and like you know and the guy's like talking like willingly and he's giving all the information and like right as he's about to give the the other cop like walks in the door and just decks him in the face yeah or something no, like that and it's just like yeah like why aren't you talking like the bad cop all of a sudden just comes into the room and just ruins it and that's I mean, that is essentially what we did like yeah, yeah the pakistanis happened. were like sitting with these people and just like being like hey buddy like you know we got you you're going away but like why don't you help us out a little bit? And then the Americans came in and just were like dumping buckets into their mouth. For a long time, I think, you know, I, I, I found like the easiest way to describe Zero Dark Thirty to someone, um, particularly someone who's like roughly, you know, in their, you know, mid late 30s to, you know, mid late 40s, um, is that like if 24 had ended like it's like six seasons and gotten a movie, <laughs> the movie is Zero Dark Thirty. <laughs> Because, because Evan, you know, think about the way you described um, Maya um, as our as our protagonist throughout. Her enemy, you know, is twofold. Her enemy is both the terrorists who mean to do America harm, and her enemy is the, the bureaucracy. internal bureaucracy right. and, by extension, laws right. that stop her from doing as she will, and all of these things have to be bulldozed if we are to keep America safe. And that's Jack Bauer. Right. That's what 24, that's what 24 is about. There is only the man willing to commit the torture standing between you and total destruction. And all of these institutions that exist that are the provinces of sniveling liberals and security state bureaucrats, that has to be bulldozed in order to make sure that America can actually be kept safe, that the institutions that seek to restrain the torturer are, 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 are the tools, in fact, of the unwitting terrorist sympathizer. It's also a direct psyop to cast Jessica Chastain in that role because she's way too hot for it. <laughs> and it's just like, it's, it's, it's so distracting throughout the, there's so many like gratuitous and Catherine Bigelow, like, I don't know who did the cinematography on this movie, but in, in most of her movies, like they're shot gorgeously and zero dark 30 is, is a very, you know, well shot film. And there's so many, I, I think it was in one of the final scenes of the raid. There's this one, like where like Jessica Chastain has her like hair down and it's like perfectly ruffled by like the desert wind. And she's like mm -hmm. in profile yeah. Yeah. and like, and everything. And I'm just like, come on, man. Like, this is like, this is the 2012 equivalent of like that e-girl that the army has doing TikToks right now. <laughs> I mean, like, I mean, I mean, like, get Jessica I mean, Chastain out of this movie. This is not okay. No, no, no. Everybody, every we can't do we we can't we can't do a zero dark thirty podcast that teeters on horny. Yeah, I mean everybody, everybody, <laughs> everybody in this. I'm movie, saying it's 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 a psyop. It's weaponized horniness. <laughs> like they want you to think that torture's good because Jessica Chastain is doing it. All right, all right. Just to just to everybody in this movie is way too hot, uh, and we're gonna get into who these people really are, which is another fascinating aspect of this story. Because as Spencer has said several times, this movie does not, this story does not end uh, on May first, two thousand eleven. The story keeps going, uh, and these people end up in the public eye for various uh, silly and amazing reasons later on, and they are not uh, attractive people. But um, 
to your point, Spencer, of the bureaucracy being the enemy, I think that that's a perfect segue into sort of another thing that I wanted to talk about, which is um, this guy who's, he used to be important for our for purposes of our podcast. He's not that important. Abu Faraj Alibi, who you were just describing a little bit, um, who for a moment in time was a high-ranking Al-Qaeda commander who Jessica Chastain is trying to get to. And they finally get him and she gets an audience with him um, which the CIA station chief kind of gives to her as like a gift. And outside the interrogation, Jason Clark, the CIA guy, is, is giving ice cream to his monkeys. And he's like, I'm getting out of here. I'm going home. And they talk a little bit about it. He's going back to Langley. He's going back to headquarters. And he gives her a warning, uh, which is a quote that I sent you guys before we started recording, which is, you don't want to be the last one holding a dog collar when the oversight committee comes. And this gets at the idea which we see, I think, in a lot of GWAT movies. And we saw it, Jack, in American Sniper, where Bradley Cooper's sort of sidekick says, if you mess up a shot, they'll fry your ass and they'll send you to Leavenworth. And we talked in, in episode one about how these movies love to pretend that the American warfighters are in peril of prosecution. That these guys, if they make one false move, are going to be sent to the brig, or they're going to be tried for murder, um, or they're going to end up in front of some congressional committee, and they're going to have to answer questions. And in fact, what happens um, is, as as you know, we all know, um, there are no torture prosecutions. In fact, the uh, Gina Haspel, who ran uh, a black site who oversaw torture, who reportedly helped destroy evidence of torture, becomes director of the CIA. And I know, Spencer, you were, you wanted to talk about, you know, how this movie wants you to sympathize with um, the interrogators and the torturers and the CIA agents, but it follows in this, in this sort of um, trend of these GWAP movies that want you to think that actually the greatest peril is the Americans who are putting themselves in harm's way to do what's right. And to take that to its logical conclusion, who are the Americans that are putting those valiant Americans in danger? It's the prospect of any sort of accountability. You know, you really see in Zero Dark Thirty um, the, the attitude that will emerge very soon after when the CIA has to deal with its Senate overseers. Um arguing in so many words that you know people whose lives the cia saved um you know the sheep dares to guard you know the sheep (laughs) dares to judge the sheepdog and all all this bullshit right um when in fact you know they're you know they're not in danger of any sort of prosecution ever happening and you know here's an interesting you know resonant fact given you know the news um at this moment when ultimately in uh, 2009, um, against Barack Obama's wishes, Attorney General Eric Holder decides to impanel um, a special prosecutor, a special um, investigator to look into um, CIA torture. First, he exempts uh, anyone in policymaking circles in the Bush administration from that torture. Second, he exempts anyone in senior CIA 
positions. So the people at the CIA who directed the torture. And instead, they look only at the same kinds of, of people that you get in the military who run into trouble for torture. The actual people who committed, right. you know, the thing with their hands, with the buckets. Right. And, um, and, and so forth. And even, you know, the mandate of that investigation was supposed to be only those people who surpassed the limits set out in the 2002 uh, Justice Department um, memo authorizing torture, which, as we've mentioned, is very permissive. Um, you know, those who surpass the uh, so-called, um, I believe it was uh, 12 or so authorized torture techniques that George Tenet issues, you know, formally in January 2003. Well, that prosecutor who, who has tons of evidence available um, about how, like, CIA guys were revving power drills and performing mock executions at people, the things like, um, you know, what they did to Amaro Bellucci that I read earlier. The special prosecutor on that decides not to charge anyone. That special prosecutor is John Durham, uh, <laughs> who now is in the news for being the guy in the Justice Department who is willing to pursue Bill Barr's anti-Russiagate gate. Oh, man. <laughs> who, who now, it emerged, like, borked that so tremendously. Story never ends. Uh, th yeah. It, it really reinforces how the hysteria and the self-pity of this era, like, among the people who are being lionized, and every step of this is a lie, except for the fact that that is, in my experience, very much how CIA operatives involved in this really felt. That much is not a lie. Mm -hmm. That's very genuine. Just to uh, keep this moving through the film a little bit, this film is punctuated by, as Jack was saying, terror attacks to constantly remind you what's at stake um, if they don't capture bin Laden. So there's the Riyadh attack that we talked about earlier. Um, there's London uh, 2005. And it keeps going... And they get to, they kind of they kind of lose track of things in two thousand nine, uh, with the sort of infamous uh, successful Taliban, Al Qaeda suicide bombing at Camp Chapman, a forward operating base operated by the U.S. in eastern Afghanistan, where uh, the CIA gets really excited that they've recruited a double agent, or, or they've found a double agent through the Jordanians inside Al Qaeda, I believe, is it? And it's this doctor named Al-Balawi. Uh, he's going to be the highest ranking informant they've ever found. They invite him to a meet. They treat him special because of how high ranking he is, which means they don't search him until he gets inside the wire. Uh, he steps out of the car, blows himself up and kills, I think, like nine people. It's, I think, the, one of the worst loss, single loss of life in the CIA's history, including one of the operatives who is chasing um, bin Laden. After this... Jessica Chastain uh, is sort of elevated to a new level of, of righteousness. She even, her character says in the movie, I believe that I was spared so that I could finish the job um, and find <laughs> Bin Laden. Um, so, so then we get to this point, which to me is actually one of the most interesting exchanges in the movie. My, one of my favorite exchanges in the movie, because as with American Sniper, you know, Jack, you and I were talking about these moments in American Sniper where it accidentally becomes like a good, a kind of a good movie. Um, and Spencer, I think you were saying there are moments in Zero Dark Thirty that you saw where you felt like the film, despite itself, 
was, you know, accidentally be tell almost telling a story that it didn't mean to tell. Um, and one of these moments for me is after Times Square, which a lot of people don't remember. I didn't even really remember the details, but this is a guy named Faisal Shahzad who tries to blow mm-hmm. up a car bomb in Times Square. The ignition device fails. Um, some guys, like I think, selling hot dogs and and food cart stuff, see the smoke, including a Senegalese Muslim immigrant. There, there you go. Mm-hmm. Um, they see smoke coming from this SUV. They alert the cops. The cops disarm the failed device. So the CIA station chief in in Islamabad runs into Jessica Chastain in the hallway. Uh, Jessica Chastain says, you haven't given me what I need to find Osama bin Laden. And the CIA station chief, AKA Kyle Chandler lights into her and says, I don't give a fuck about bin Laden. I give a fuck about the homeland. Stop, you know, chasing this guy. He doesn't matter anymore. This guy who almost blew up times square, never even interacted with bin Laden. And it's true in real life. Faisal Shahzad, had no connection to, um, you know, central Al Qaeda had no connection to bin Laden. So this is when things start to change, right? This is when plots start to move from centrally planned Al Qaeda stuff to guys who are inspired, um, or they're, or, and they're, and they're getting their money and their, and their information from elsewhere. And Jessica Chastain then in a very, in a very Maya move in this movie, basically like threatens to haul her boss before a Senate committee. And is like, I would hate to tell, you know, the investigators that you were the guy, um, you know, who was the reason why bin Laden slipped through our fingers and threatens her boss with, you know, um, investigation. And I don't know what you guys think. I can't, I I think, I think the movie sides with Chastain in that, you know, she's this sort of righteous zealot, but the CIA station chief is, is right. Um, because, well, no, go ahead. Well, like bin Laden, he's still a figure in Al Qaeda. He's still important and allegedly still making plans, but the air, the age of terrorism is transforming. And, you know, like in, in, in like five years uh, or less, actually ISIS is, is right around the corner. And so this, this single-minded focus on eliminating Osama bin Laden, we know um, isn't ultimately going to matter. You know, it's not going to stop, terrorism from occurring for various reasons yeah but this is the missing piece this is the missing piece in in the movie and i think like the the point that you're driving at which is why does faisal shazid try and blow up times square well luckily he fucking told us (laughs) and the reason why he tried to bomb times square he tells court proudly so is because of the war on terror right that he says the united states has invaded iraq invaded afghanistan drops drones on Pakistan and anywhere else it pleases. And I'm just supposed to be okay with this? No, fuck you. And that's why Faisal Shahzad tries to (laughs) blow up Times Square. Because the United States is waging a psychotic campaign around the world with no theory of victory, only a theory that American power has to be expended in order to reestablish that the United States is not to be fucked with. It is the one to fuck with people. Right. And that is what the, you know, the, the, that is what zero dark 30 really by design can't do. Right. That's what that conversation can't include. It can't say that the reason why this is happening in the homeland is because of what we're doing. Right, right. Exactly. Zero Dark Thirty 
is never going to, and you know, the 9-11 commission report is no different from this, but Zero Dark Thirty is not going to be a movie that stops and thinks, why did they do this in the first place? Right. I, I think it's... Why does this keep happening? Why does the United States keep making through the process of fighting terrorism more terrorists? Why does terrorism get worse? As you mentioned, Evan, this movie, which, you know, once the, you know, the credits roll is trying to tell us that, you know, this is over, without the war on terror being over, we're four years away. No, we're three years away. We're not even three years away, right? This comes out in 2013. Mm -hmm. So, like, ISIS is the next year. ISIS, ISIS conquers Mosul... June 2014. June 2014. ISIS, which never would have existed had the United States not invaded Iraq and allowed the circumstances for the coalescence of what would become Al-Qaeda in Iraq, which would become the Islamic State. So never is that going to be addressed in this movie. It, it only leaves you with the CIA's narrative that the and you can see this in a variety of administrations that you know from Obama to Trump to Biden that the terrorism threat is now so diffuse that we simply must play this this kind of endless game of of a of a low level um, inconspicuous um, uh, economy of force war on terror whose authorizations uh, don't end whose institutions don't get unraveled, even if on occasion some of its operations get rolled back. Yeah, I thought this, it was sort of interesting and it makes sense thematically as a film and just like structurally, but this is an entire war on terror movie that doesn't actually have any scenes of the war on terror, excluding the raid at the very end, basically. There's no depiction of american forces doing anything overseas right. in any country or or even or even any mention of it you know jack brings up the the raid uh and so just to sort of get us to that point in the film because i also wanted to i wanted to talk about the raid and i want to talk about the post 2011 uh history of all these individuals which sort of brings us to your book spencer um, and it involves people who you have actually spoken to. Um, but we get to, um, basically the end of the story, um, which involves again, some sort of, um, perhaps slightly fanciful, uh, detective work to find the courier, which involves these CIA officers driving in circles around various cities and setting up pickets. And some of this is real, you know, they did, uh, it, it talks about how they set up a fake um, vaccination program, which was very controversial uh, and I think involved that vaccination campaign getting kicked out of Pakistan and probably leading to like yeah, the enormous yeah. public health risk yeah. that the CIA was willing to take to basically underscore something um, else in the film, which is that like. Non-Americans are not really people in this movie. No, they never are. Even when they're aligned, even when they align with the CIA, the CIA doesn't call them the Jordanians. They call them the Jords. Doesn't call them the Pakistanis. They call them the Pacs, right? Mm -hmm. They're always these devious, distrustworthy people, even when nominally aligned with the CIA. And it's them that they blame um, the Camp Chapman attack on. Where we do actually sort of weirdly spend the most time with the victims is during the raid sequence. 
which a lot of people hold up as being kind of the best part of this movie. It's certainly meant to be the centerpiece of this movie. You can't, it's almost like Saving Private Ryan in reverse. Saving Private Ryan opens with the D-Day invasion. Zero Dark Thirty closes with the raid to kill Bin Laden, which in my opinion, I mean, for the, for millennials, I think if anything is going to be um, on par with sort of World War II and D-Day, it's A, 9-11 itself and B, um, or at least people would want it to be killing bin Laden. I don't know what else you would hold up as sort of like bookends or markers of an era. So we, so we get to the raid to kill bin Laden and with very little sort of prelude, um, this kicks off. It just, it, it goes to, um, act, you know, final act, which is called the canaries because Jessica Chastain says these guys are the canaries. Um, and we set off on the, on the helicopters, uh, we fly into Pakistani airspace. Um, and I want to get both of your takes on, on the raid sequence. Um, you know, Jack, you and I have talked about how these GWAT films, they, they go into operator mode and some of them do it sort of cartoonishly like American sniper. Zero Dark 30 is sort of anti-cartoon. Um, it wants to treat the raid with absolute seriousness. Um, and it wants to get the details meticulously correct. You know, people talk about how the filmed raid almost matches exactly the amount of minutes that it took to do the real raid. Um, I don't know. I don't think that's exactly true, but people kind of hold it up as proof that they're, they're paying attention to the details and the raid goes down. I'm not going to like do the whole raid in detail. You guys can sort of highlight what you think about it, but the raid goes down in very clinical, sort of fashion. And as Jack said at the beginning of the show, the seals are never in any danger. I mean, yet there's a couple armed guys in the household, but these there's, they get fired on, they get fired on. Once. Yeah. The, the, the op- they get fired on once in the first engagement of the raid. Through a, yeah. Through a door. Um, and they, and they, yeah. they waste the guy really quickly. I mean, these guys are never, there's so much, there's so many levels above, you know, bin Laden's sort of helpers that it's never really a question. Um, but what the raid scene does is it's sort of just this, this sort of like clinical brutal, these guys work their way through the house. They shoot the guys with guns. They shoot the women who even sort of move toward the guns. There's this one image that is, I think, I think intentionally a very powerful image where one of the operators basically shoots the wife of one of bin Laden's lieutenants who is going to like maybe pick up his AK 47 and he shoots her. And then he's, he later remarks that he's left her to bleed out. But right after he shoots her, um, the, the camera cuts to like a three second close up of this guy's eye um, in the green wash of the, of the night vision, just sort of unemotionally staring down at this woman who he's just um, killed. And, it's not telling you that he feels sad about it. It's not even telling you the audience, whether you should feel sad about it. It's just, it's sort of emotionless. And then, and then bin Laden is killed and it's totally, it's, it's like flat, you know, there's no music, you know, there's no buildup. It's two guys in a dark hallway saying, you know, whispering Osama and he peeks his head out um, and they, and they kill him and they walk in the room and they put two rounds in his chest. And then from there, it's sort of, you know, there's a denouement with the body returning to base and everything. Um, 
but it's it's clinical, it's dark, it's brutal, it's not rah-rah, except for this Geronimo thing that ends it. Um, so I understand why people like it, but it almost, to me, is stands apart from the rest of the movie. And I'm very curious what you guys think about it. I think it's de- it's def it it feels like a separate movie, like it's it's so contained, and the the film style um, is right. significantly different. So some of this, like you know, what they've decided to do here, like for the for the first part of the, for all of the movie before the raid, we see things through Maya's eyes. We see things like she she sort of mm-hmm. takes us through this. Um, and now we, I, and I think this is kind of what they're going for by, by, you know, doing it in night vision, by having it be like, you know, camera over the shoulder of the man in front of you. Right. You're there. You are killing Osama <laughs> right. bin Laden. You, this is your chance to be a tier one operator. That I think is, is really what, you know, the, the takeaway of, of that scene is that you get to kill Osama bin Laden. That, that you are meant to feel whatever it is you feel about whoever, um, whoever, I think from an American presumed perspective, certainly, whoever else needs to die in that compound is going to die in that compound. And they're a footnote to history. What matters is that we, that day we killed Osama bin Laden and you are yeah. there doing it. I mean, from purely like movie watching experience, like the raid rocks. Like there's no... right other way like i haven't seen an action movie like or a a sequence in an action movie that's filmed in that way with like that level of detail and that sort of like meticulousness of approach and it like i mean it's a it's an extremely effective conclusion to the film which you know as i was saying earlier like provides this emotional payoff that justifies all the horrible things that have happened before it and everything. But like, but you can't like, you, you can't really watch this movie and get around the fact that like the final sequence, it like, it rocks. It's incredible. Um, and like, I mean, the realism of everything, I, I it's, it's one of the f- first, like fewest action movies I've seen where nobody shoots anything fully automatic. Mm-hmm. Which is like, which is always just like a, a, a like a revelation. Whenever that happens in a movie, I'm like, wait, people are actually just shooting semi-automatic because that is what mm-hmm. that is what people actually do in real life. Nobody uses like a standard rifleman in anything, even in like the regular army, let alone the seals. Like they don't put their guns on full auto mm-hmm. at all. Anyway, so like, and 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 it's all it's it's meticulously laid out like that, and I would like personally enjoy a completely politics divorced action movie in which that was the main filming style but i don't think that you can in this instance like like yeah i would love to see hyper realistic action movie but i'm not sure that you can you can the thing is is as like sort of gratifying as that can be to see as someone you know as military dork nerd that like actually like knows these things and can do the little like oh easter egg like they got that right Mm -hmm. you know it's gratifying that is this i don't think you can divorce that process from the politics that it represents and from the like we talk a lot uh evan what we're i think gonna make a running bit on this on this podcast is like when the films go operator mode and how operator mode they go Mm -hmm. and 
Zero Dark Thirty, the raid scene in that is as operator mode as it can possibly be. Right. I don't think another film that we watch is going to go as operator mode and all the operator mode scenes in future films are like either trying to be that or trying to be like a more dramatized glamorized version of that and i think the politics of that of operator mode is what spencer said it's to put the viewer into a feeling like they are one of these tier one operators and they're witnessing like just the sheer might of the american military of like they're seeing you know the scalpel which is the what the special forces always you know talk about themselves as and i think there's just like this visceral like implied political statement behind that especially in zero dark 30 that this raid goes off so well and so smoothly and it's filmed so well and so smoothly that it's like that it gives you the feeling that because that competency equals uh equals righteousness i guess Mm -hmm right that these seals are so good at what they're doing that what they're doing can't be wrong i think it's also one of the quietest action scenes in probably mm-hmm. movie history yeah it's a it's an extremely quiet scene um they're trying to like infuse it with that solemnity all to the same you know purpose that you outlined jack there, there's the no music right no. Now, i don't think there's music yeah there's yeah. there's not there's not a back there's not an underlying music yeah. track that's you know going to swell is um you know the the operative known to history as red finally kills osama bin laden i think you know it's 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 interesting to sort of do a like a like a mental experiment about how this movie will be seen you know 50 years 100 years in the future you think about old war films like one of the best war films of all time paths of glory and directed by Stanley Kubrick and watching paths of glory today. It doesn't matter if paths of glory accurately represents world war one trench warfare down to the most minute detail. Um, and whether Kirk Douglas, you know, is wearing the right uniforms and the right medals and firing the right weapon, because we're not, you know, film goers in, 2023 are not going to care about whether 1915, 1916, 1917 warfare is being represented accurately in a movie from the 1950s. Um, We're going to care if it's a good movie and we're also going to care about what kind of point it's trying to make and what kind of political point it's trying to make. And the political point Paths of Glory tries to make is that, you know, war is hell and, and men are thrown like lambs to the slaughter by glory seeking generals. And so, when people look back at Zero Dark Thirty and they watch this movie, um, who knows how the United States is going to be perceived in 50 to 100 years. I can't imagine it's going to be perceived any better than it's currently perceived. I, you know, our reputation, I don't think, is... The war on terror is not exactly going to age well. No, it's not going to age well. And so what, what people are going to be watching in 50 years or 100 years, if we still have television sets to watch movies on, um, is, a, as Jack said, a very cool action scene um that is exciting to watch but that is showing the most powerful imperial force in the world executing to precision um the targeted killing of its adversary and i think the ultimate question is is the film ambiguous about that 
And is the film ambiguous enough about that, that it will stand the test of time as a good war film? I mean, one of the, one of the reviewers who I was reading on, on Letterboxd said he thought that when people revisit this film in 30 years, they're going to be astounded that um, a major studio allowed this film to get made, which I think is the opposite of how you feel, Spencer, which is that, of course, this is the major studio output about the war on terror because it's essentially propaganda. Yeah. So in case we didn't like underscore the point earlier, like Bigelow and Bull are the CIA's chosen filmmakers. This is this is a movie that occurs and could only occur with like unique, exclusive access and cooperation um, to the institutions of national power um, in the war in the war on terror. And it tells their story. It can't do what Kubrick did. You know, it it can't raise, you know, every relevant question about the war on terror. And so it can't reach um, this tone of ambivalence that makes you wonder um, if it's not worth it. A reader or a viewer, I should say, um, is channeling their own. I don't think that's what the movie is showing you. I think the movie wants you to reflect on all of this sacrifice, but end in a place because this is the CIA telling its story that yes, we did barbaric things. You want us once you leave this movie to understand and applaud us for doing those barbaric things, because that got you the thing you wanted. And the thing you wanted um, is, is told, um, you know, practically balletically when they, when they give you the, um, the the Abbottabad raid to make this a little bit more concrete for about like a year and a half I was the Pentagon press corps guy for Wired magazine I worked most days of the week out of the Pentagon when you walk between the bullpen where the reporters work in the Pentagon and um, along the corridor to get to the Pentagon briefing room, you pass by the office of Hollywood liaison. <laughs> and every now and then I would poke my head in there and got to know a guy named Phil who, who held that job because I thought as working for Wired, like I should really get to know like the guy who, you know, tells, you know, Marvel studios that they have a real problem um, and can't, you know, contribute to the Avengers anymore <laughs> because the chain of command in the movie implies that the United States military might be under some multinational control. It's a real story that happened. The point that I'm driving at is every studio will want to tell the zero dark 30 of its day. This is, this is how Hollywood works. Spencer, I think what you were saying about, you know, this, this is the film that the CAA really wanted to get made is, is, kind of the biggest thing that I took away from this movie because you you look at um the person who uh Maya who Jessica Chastain's character is is most based off of uh, who I think we mentioned early in the show is a woman named um Alfreda Scheuer uh, uh formerly Alfreda Bukowski um who is this sort of infamous CIA operative uh she was called the the queen of torture by a, a Jane Mayer New Yorker article in, in 2014. Um, she's kind of this notorious figure. Uh, she did an interview with Reuters uh, back in, uh, when was it, April of last year? 
Um, I, yeah, shout out to Aram Rostin who did that piece. Yeah, yeah, it was it was a great piece. I know because I, I dashed off a quick sort of aggregation takey blog uh, about it uh, for Rolling Stone. But you can see this directly in the quotes that she said could have come straight out of Jessica Chastain's mouth in this movie. Like it, the the similarities between the character that that Bigelow creates for Chastain and clearly how um, how the real life person behind that sees themselves are it's it's just one to one. Like she she tells Reuters, I think directly, I got bloodied and kept coming back to try again and again to do something. I'm proud that I wasn't on the sidelines. I didn't bury my head in the sand. Later on, like they, uh, the the Reuters reporter asked her directly about the Queen of Torture moniker, and she says, "I got that title because I was in the arena. In fact, I raised my hand loud and proud, and you know, I don't regret it at all." Um, and and this is this is you know clearly like exactly sort of the the arc that Jessica Chastain's character takes, where she comes in and she realizes that everything she has done in the course of this film is worth it. And, and I think that's, that's sort of the message of this film. And when we're thinking about how it's going to look in 20 years, in 30 years, I think it's, it's, it's sort of almost like the film is an extended one of her quotes in this Reuters interview, where Chastain has almost been given enough rope to kind of let the see, and I don't think she did this intentionally. I think, I think she, she did this, you know, to make them look good. But I think my hope, at least, is that the historical interpretation of this film would be like the CIA let someone make the film that they wanted to get told to the world. And that was just enough rope for them to hang themselves, basically, that like that this is what they want to put out there. This was their best shot at sort of rehabilitating their image. And it's incredibly effective, but I think it's it's really only effective maybe because of the very clear kind of emotional hook and hold that 9-11 and that the very sort of real impacts of 9-11 and the Iraq war and things like that on the American people had. And I think future generations that are more divorced from those conflicts and like, you know, the kids that are born past 2001 now, they don't remember 9-11 and they know it was bad. But when you're learning about these things in the history books, you're not going to view this film in the same way. Like you're not going to remember, like, they won't remember where they were when they found out that bin Laden did die. They won't remember that like, you know, the rock knew it first for some reason. Um, and, and, and things like this, it won't have the same hold over people. And I think without that, what this film is just going to show is like, this is who the CIA wants to be. This is who they've always wanted to be. And this is what they want to tell the world that they are. They are the, you know, the scary guy in the darkness who does the bad things to keep the world safe. That's always been the myth that they've, that they've purported. And that's the myth that this film puts forward better than anything. And it's the myth that they clearly, even afterwards with, you know, uh, Alfreda Scherer now is, is, is a life coach, which a was, life coach. yeah, she has this wonderful like Facebook based uh, it's, it's called uh, YBU beauty and personal coaching. Um, she snaps her fingers and you go into the dog kennel. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, and, and, and this is, but like, this is who they, this is who they want. This is who they wanted to be. This is what they believe about themselves. And I think the historical record 
at least my hope is just going to show how false all of that was. This is my favorite Alfreda Bukowski quote. Um, I'm going to read from the Senate torture report. The waterboarding of Khalid Sheikh Mohammed on March 21st, 2003 and March 22nd, 2003 was based on a misreading of intelligence provided by Majid Khan by Deputy Chief of Alex Station, Alfreda Bukowski. Alex Station is the CIA's Osama bin Laden unit. It was named for Mike Scheuer's eldest son. According to a cable from the CIA's redacted, Khan, who was in a foreign government custody, had stated that Khalid Sheikh Mohammed wanted to use, quote, two to three unknown black American Muslim converts who are currently training in Afghanistan to conduct attacks on gas stations in the United States, and that KSM was interested in using anyone with U.S. status to assist with this operation. Upon receipt of this reporting, Bukowski wrote in an email, I love the black American Muslim at AQ camps in Afghanistan. Muki, meaning Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, is going to be hating life on this one. <laughs> However, her subsequent questioning of Khalid Sheikh Mohammed was not based on Khan's actual reporting, which was about potential operatives already in Afghanistan, but rather something Khan had not said, that Khalid Sheikh Mohammed directed him to make contact with African-American converts in the United States. According to CIA records, in a contentious session that lasted for hours and involved the use of the CIA's enhanced interrogation techniques, torture, KSM flatly denied any efforts to recruit African-American Muslim converts. Khalid Sheikh Mohammed was then waterboarded. Later in the day, facing the threat of a second waterboarding session, KSM relented and said that maybe he had told Khan that he should see if he could make contact with members of the black American Muslim convert community. The CIA interrogators then returned Khalid Sheikh Mohammed to the standing sweep deprivation position without a second waterboarding session. That's what the torture was, and that's what uh, Ms. Bukowski's um, role in it occasionally was. She, as far as I know, was at the CIA until 2021. Right, so... To be clear, the real-life person who Jessica Chastain is playing in this movie, um, she's a composite of multiple individuals. But one of them um, is this woman, Alfreda, who also has sort of red hair. And not only uh, was Alfreda um, Bukowski deeply involved in the torture program and in justifying the torture program, Alfreda Bukowski was responsible or likely responsible for multiple um, extraordinary renditions, including Khalid El-Masri, uh, who Spencer, I don't know if you ever reported on his case. Yeah, it's it's horrific. Yeah, so this, this is a, a you woman- You want to summarize it? Yeah, yeah. This is a woman who, um, as head of the, the Alex station that you were just describing, the Bin Laden station, made the decision to render this man, Khalid El-Masri, to Afghanistan for four months without any evidence. His passport was checked. It was confirmed that he was not the person they were looking for. Bukowski still held him in detention. Eventually, he was released on a country road in Albania. The CIA inspector general determined that there was no legal justification for rendering this guy to Afghanistan, and Bukowski received no reprimand for the incident. Just to take us to kind of the final part of this story, it is in a way, and Spencer, you are the expert here, the fact that these behaviors are not only encouraged, but unpunished 
that leads us into the current era um, in which we have sort of Trumpism and the continued life of all of these characters, including Bukowski's husband, Michael Schuer, another former director of the Bin Laden um, station, who has become a QAnon conspiracist. Yeah, I caught up with Mike um, in uh, 2020. Um, and, you know, loquacious person. Mike writes a really fascinating book, in many ways a very disgusting one, but but also, you know, fascinating from the perspective of, of, of like seeing sort of the id of the war on terror. Um, because this is the only book I think you'll ever read Maybe this will, you know, start happening um, in in the America that's to come. But it is simultaneously, he writes this in 2004 when he's kind of marginalized at the CIA, but still, you know, working there. He writes it initially anonymous. The book is called Imperial Hubris. And it's, it's, it's a rare book you will read that writes nearly worshipfully of Osama bin Laden in the same breath as writing worshipfully about Robert E. Lee. <laughs> this is a wild, wild fucking book. Um, I think Mike was trying to express that, like, he had passed over into a kind of um, respectful equanimity about his quarry um, and saw that there were, in fact real reasons why especially compared to the united states people around the world rallied to you know bin laden as an example he way overstates that by the way mm -hmm. but it is how he he sort of he means to pay tribute to bin laden he also means in that in that early book um to call attention to what he sees as the decadence of the united states I wrote a piece for the Daily Beast um, in September of 2020, catching up with him, um, called uh, He Hunted Bin Laden for CIA, Now He Wants Americans Dead. And I'll just give a little bit of a flavor of it. Michael Scheuer calls Black Lives Matter a terrorist organization and a semi-human mob. I would also just quickly interject and submit that the person who started Alex Station calling a, calling a protest organization a terrorist organization... You know, that that matters. This man did renditions. On his blog and his podcast, Scheuer rages against a widespread treasonous conspiracy targeting not only President Trump, but the fundamental character of the American Republic. It deserves, quote, punishment we've not seen before in this country. Kyle Rittenhouse, the 17-year-old charged with murder for shooting demonstrators at a Kenosha, Wisconsin protest, is a young hero. If America is lucky, Scheuer wrote last week, Rittenhouse's necessary patriotic and constitutional actions will power the formation of militias across the United States. In July, he wrote, Loyal Americans know their domestic enemies as well as their locations in detail and will be able to act swiftly to eliminate them and the threat that they pose. I would suggest that perhaps we should take seriously that one of the people present, present at the creation of the War on Terror says and acts this way that this is the war on terror being uh -huh. its most authentic self, that the war on terror is a sorting mechanism for Americans in a moment where they may decide that their actual enemies are their political opponents and politics has reached a point 
where democracy is failed and only violence can triumph. That's also a short pitch for what my book Reign of Terror is about. Jack, do you think we should do, should we do the challenge coin uh, thing? I think, I, I think we kind of got to do the challenge coin thing, especially with so this Spen- movie. So Spencer, All right, so what am I, yeah. he, he, here's how it works. There's, there's, I think there's three categories that you can give zero to five challenge coins in. Uh, one is realism. One is how operator this movie is. And yeah. what's the other one, Jack? Realism, operator, and patriotism, or like Jingoism. Oh yeah, right. How how yeah. how? And then and then say what's on your challenge coin to represent zero dark thirty at the end of it. We can take a minute to think about this. I think I'll start off. I'll start off. Um, so on the on the patrio Jingoism uh, flag, I'm gonna give this. I'm gonna give this a two point five out of five challenge coins because Whoa. it's it starts off with a whole lot of let's go get these bastards. Um, but by the end of the movie, you're just kind of drained and you're like, I, d- I don't want to do this anymore. This really, this really took it out of me. I can see a case for this being higher because at the end, maybe, maybe you're really happy that we Geronimo uh bin Laden, but I'm going to give it 2.5 challenge coins. Um, I'm going to give it, I'm going to actually give it two challenge coins for realism I think a lot of people would give it like five out of five without understanding the torture stuff. I think the raid, the raid scene uh, is worth a challenge coin. Um, and the, the representation of physical torture is worth a challenge coin, but it loses three challenge coins for um, completely fucking up how we actually got information from Al Qaeda subjects and eliding um, all of the bad things that the Jessica Chastain character did in real life. And then I'm I'm gonna give it five out of five operator coins because the raid scene, the raid scene just stands atop as Jack said the uh, the cinematic canon of going operator mode, and on my challenge coin is um, CIA agent and chief torturer Dan um, feeding his caged monkeys chocolate ice cream. That's good. That's really good. Um, I guess I'll go next. We'll give Spencer more time to ponder the nature of challenge coins. <laughs> And uh, and our rating system here um, on the I think on the jingoism scale, uh, I it it gets uh, it gets four four challenge coins out of five. The only thing that stops it from being a five out of five on the on the jingoism scale, I think, is the fact that is is maybe the fact that someday this will be looked back upon as like a yeesh, like can't believe we did that <laughs> sort of thing, you know, like it's, 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 uh, it's dedication to showing exactly what the CIA wants is like almost works, almost makes it less jingoist because they look bad um, right. to anyone who is, uh, you know, not a psychopath um, on the, uh, on the realism scale yeah i think i think it's it's two operator coins uh out of two that torture is realistic and the and the raid scene is realistic and those are the only two coins it gets because everything in the middle part of that is ridiculous i forgot we didn't even mention the scene where jessica chastain just gets shot at in the middle of pakistan oh, right. yes for yes for no reason 
and then comes in like that just dropped in the middle of the movie because they're like, yeah, it's been 20 minutes of Jessica Chastain, like yelling at people in conference rooms. Like we need an action sequence and there's no terrorist attack that we can plug in here. So what if she gets shot at while leaving her house? Uh, And apparently she has uh, a really awesome like Toyota Corolla that has windows that can defeat 762 by 39. Right. Uh, <laughs> um, right. Which rocks. And I would love to have that uh, Toyota Corolla. <laughs> um, anyway, so, so two, two out of two, two out of five challenge coins uh, for realism score. Um, and then on the, on the final one operator. Um, I mean, this gets, it gets, I'm giving it, I'm giving it a four out of five on the operator score. And that is based off of extremely strong operator scores uh, in the first part of the movie and the end part of the movie. I think that the torture scenes are actually kind of when you go operator mode, but you don't have guns. You just have waterboarding. Mm -hmm. Like that whole scene, like Dan is like Dan, right? The, the, The guy with the monkeys. He's like, he's going operator mode on these guys. He's calling them bro while he's like right, right. beating them up. He's like doing his like thing. He's got the 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 shirt and stuff, you know, the 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 tough guy in the Middle East collared shirt thing going on and his sleeves are rolled up. Like he's operator mode in those scenes. And then of course the raid is the most operator mode thing anyone has ever done. Like that like Chris Pratt went so operator mode in that movie that he decided he was never going to not go operator mode for the rest of his career. <laughs> he got, he, he was he like, got stuck he was in like, operator I mode. I love this shit so fucking much. I will never not be operator mode. I stay operator moding. I am the operator now. Um, I think the only thing, the only thing that would give this five out of five operator modes is if Jessica Chastain herself had an Ooh, opportunity yes, to go right, operator mode right, like if right. when she gets shot at in her bulletproof toyota corolla if she had like pulled out her sidearm or something like that and like like gotten out of the car and like shot at the assassins as they were like driving away or something like that or like done a like point break and like shot up in the air or something which also uh, great i'm Kevin shocked Bigelow she movie. didn't uh then it might have gotten five out of five but i think we got to give it four out of five because all the conference room stuff was boring um and on my challenge coin oh, i'm torn between my challenge coin just being um a really photorealistic loving depiction of jessica chastain with her hair like down in the last <laughs> scene love jessica chastain um a big fan man i don't know like it i can you know, i mean she yeah. she looks good she looks good yeah yeah um I'm not. I'm not insulting Jessica Chastain. I'm torn. I'm, I'm just, torn between. I'm, I'm, I'm remarking on how often this has been. Received. And on my on my challenge coin and uh, and my challenge coin having the uh, extremely detailed um, architectural uh, like scale model the of the Bin Laden <laughs> compound that they have in there, which is awesome because I, that sent me down a spiral in this. And I know I'm taking too long. I'm sorry, but I was thinking, does the CIA have a guy inside Langley that makes architectural models like that? Oh, they absolutely. Have to out- for sure. They, they, yeah. Yes. And, and very, and very often they're, they're also like resident in units. I, I just, I just like models and that was cool. So that's on my challenge going, not Jessica Chastain. I like the model more to be clear. Okay. Spencer. Okay, so on on the on the realism scale, just on general principle, I award it no challenge points. Yeah, that's this fair. Is, Whoa, a zero. Fun, this I is, don't know if we've had a zero. This is, before, this is yeah. 
this is fun this is fundamentally a work of propaganda the fact that they get certain details right serves the propaganda it doesn't undermine it yep um they they have to construct a reality for you uh that you will suspend disbelief about so on you know we have to resist the psychic death this can this can get no challenge coins very punk rock on the realism, right yeah. on, on the on the uh, on the real yeah, respect scale. it um on the operator scale you know you guys said it I'm, I'm i'm at the end of this why belabor it it's 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 it you you go all five you, you throw them in there everyone you know even you when jessica chastain even when jessica chastain doesn't get you know to actually you know operate um from the perspective of the people who actually were the war on terror within the cia she is operator mode throughout that she's operator mode the moment she decides she no longer gives a shit uh, how Amar Bellucci is treated. Mm-hmm. That is her. That's the moment for her mm-hmm. um, where we can say that that she goes operator mode um, and doesn't look back. I, I feel compelled to also, if you'll if we'll forgive a very quick um, digression, one of the stories that the Senate Intelligence Report kind of between the line also between the lines also documents is so many of the people within the CIA who performed this torture um, are disgusted. And in fact, some several try and make it stop from the inside because the difference between what this is on paper and what this is to the human body is so enormous that even people who thought that they were on board with this um, ultimately Mm -hmm. um, find, find, find ways not to be. And that's one of the reasons that, um, the inspector general is involved um, so early. Um, so I think it is important, even when we talk about um, the the CIA as an institution and a structure that did all of these things and got away with all of these things, that there were people from the start inside who knew that this was wrong. And that only increases um, the historical judgment on people like Gina Haspel, um, torturers, bosses of torturers, people who covered up torture, um, people who stuck around through the CIA in order to achieve a final vindication uh, that she ultimately got when Trump made her CIA director to the acclaim of all of the people in the quote-unquote resistance national security circles who were so opposed to Trump Mm -hmm. um, and who and who backed Haspel. Um, On a patriotism scale, you know, I think four out of five. I think there is something, you know, notwithstanding the intentions of this movie um, that uh, reader, that viewers are going to bring to say that, you know, what ultimately I saw, even if it does fill me with this patriotic, you know, facade of righteousness, is at least troublesome enough that it that it stays with me. Um, and that I think undoes the patriotism that they very cynically intend to stoke, but also speaks of the patriotism of the conscience of the person who watches this and recognizes that it's something America um, not only uh, ought to add to its long list of infamies, um, but owes very serious and very material reparation to the people it did this to, of the tens of millions of people who did the, who, who the United States did this to. And what's on the coin? Oh, oh God! Oh. <laughs> oh no! Yeah. Okay. Oh boy. <laughs> okay. It's the, the um, small confinement box. Yeah, we're, we're we you know we're kind of all still in the box. 
uh, and and we haven't gotten out since 9-11.